0: Welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at HowIsThisMovie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please take just a little time to leave us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Now, about two weeks ago, this show, How Is This Movie?, received a very generous donation from one of our listeners. And even though I've already reached out to this person, who wishes to remain anonymous, to thank them, I want to take a moment and say thank you again for helping to fund this show for the next year. You know who you are, and you're awesome. Thank you again. The telephone was dead. Leland was going for the Browning when he heard the woman scream. He was on his feet at once. His head was clear. He got into the harness, drew the gun, popped the safety, and snapped the first round into the firing chamber. Leland extinguished the lights and opened the door slowly, as silently as possible. The corridor was empty, but now he could hear a man's voice, sharp, but too far away to be intelligible. Leland had to decide what to do now. His shoes were in the bathroom. If the voice was barking orders to party goers, then it was only a matter of moments before his teammates made a search of the rooms on this floor. How many of them were there? The staircase was around the other side of the elevator bank. For a second, Leland would be exposed as he crossed the main corridor, but if people were looking the other way, into the party room, he might just get away with it. The Browning. If he were caught with it, there would be shooting. If he left it behind, and they found it, they would come looking for the owner. No time to hide it either. No sense in giving them a chance to get closer to him at all. Not when he was carrying an NYPD badge. Barefoot. The Browning Raised. Leland stepped into the shaved surface of the industrial carpet in the corridor. The voice became louder as Leland neared the elevator bank. He had to get a line on this, if he could. But he had to achieve safety, some measure of it, at least. He stopped five feet before he reached the corner. An accent. Leland could still not make out the words. The accent was faint. The careful, conscious phrasing showed the speaker had studied the language in school, or later. Now Leland darted across the elevator area to the staircase door. Four of them, one of whom he recognized. God damn it. God damn it. All armed with the world's best one-man weapon, the Kalashnikov AK-47 assault rifle. Leland shook with rage and self reproach He should have done better than this. He waited, catching his breath. If he had been spotted, someone would have shouted. He had to evaluate what he had seen, which was plenty. He had to think. The first obvious point was that he could not take any kind of effective action with the information he had so far. Now he had to make another decision. He opened the door to the staircase carefully, stepped in, and eased the door closed quietly behind him. He went up, his bare feet taking the cool, rough, concrete steps lightly. Two at a time. That was a passage from author Roderick Thorpe's highly intense action thriller novel, Nothing Lasts Forever. The book served as the basis for the film Die Hard, one of the great action movies of all time. However, the story of how the film Die Hard came to be isn't as simple as just being based on a book. The story of Die Hard actually starts way back in 1966 with the publication of the book. The Detective by Roderick Thorpe. The story centers around private investigator Joe Leland. When Leland is asked by a widow to investigate the background of her recently deceased husband, Leland finds that this is not some random case, rather that he knew the deceased going way back to World War II. The book was sharply written and moved along with a great pace. It also dealt with some very taboo subject matter for the time. So in 1968, a film adaptation was released by 20th Century Fox with none other than Old Blue Eyes himself, Mr. Frank Sinatra, playing Joe Leland. Now, keep this in mind. Up until that point, Sinatra's films, well, for the most part, were very lighthearted, and he would often be on screen with other members of the Rat Pack. I want you to think of, like, Ocean's Eleven, films like that. But this role was quite different. It was 1968, and I have said it over and over again, that 1968 marked a turning point in American cinema, and Sinatra received critical praise for his dark and edgy performance. The film went on to be one of the highest-grossing films of 1968. Now, Roderick Thorpe, would write six more novels in the late '60s and throughout the 1970s, but it wasn't until 1979's Nothing Lasts Forever that we would see the return of Joe Leland. This time around, a much older Leland is in LA to visit his daughter, Stephanie Gennaro. Now Stephanie is a high-level executive with the Claxon Oil Company. Leland is visiting her at the 40-story corporate headquarters of the Claxon Oil Corporation, and it happens to be Christmas Eve. He isn't there more than 20 minutes when a group of German terrorists. Hell bent on exposing the Klaxon Company's illegal dealings with the Chilean military dictatorship, and all the while breaking into the company's vault and dumping its contents, some six million in cash, from the roof of the building. Leland manages to elude capture and spends the rest of the novel taking out the terrorists one at a time before having an epic showdown during the book's climax with the terrorist leader Anton little Tony Gruber. Now, Roderick Thorpe had explained that after he had watched The Towering Inferno in 1975, he had a dream about a man being chased through an office building. And that's what led to the idea of writing the book and bringing Joe Leland back for another adventure. Nothing Lasts Forever instantly found itself on the bestseller list, with many critics praising the level of tension and action throughout the book. Now, Nothing Lasts Forever was a sharp departure from the well, I guess you could say crime noir that was the detective. And like every great bestseller, it was only a matter of time before discussion started about adapting this story into a film. And 20th Century Fox, the studio behind the detective held the rights to develop the film. Now, 20th Century Fox sat on this for six years before finally deciding to move forward. Now, in 1985, 20th Century Fox released Commando starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. The film about a retired Delta Force operative who was forced back into action to rescue his kidnapped daughter is not only a critical and financial hit, but in my opinion, it was the quintessential 1980s action film. When I say quintessential, I mean there was a string of films with larger-than-life action stars that never ran out of ammo, never got injured, and Commando personified that genre. But I know what you're thinking. Why are you talking about Commando? This show is about Die Hard. Well, there's a Die Hard connection to this film. Now, now there's one thing that 20th Century Fox wasn't counting on when they started pre-production on Nothing Lasts Forever, and that was that they were contractually obligated to offer Frank Sinatra the lead role in the film. He starred in The Detective, and somewhere in that contract language, it was said that if there was ever a sequel you had to offer it to Frank first. But keep this in mind, Sinatra was 73 years old at the time, and he still wielded a lot of power and a lot of say in the industry. And the execs at 20th Century Fox, they really had their backs against the wall. They knew that there was no way that Sinatra could be effective in that role, and they would have to spend millions to buy out his option. So if he had said yes, 20th Century Fox had three choices. They could make the film, which would have been, honestly, laughed out of the theaters. They could buy out his contract. An option that would have killed the project, or they could just scrap the whole idea and move on to another project. It kind of makes you wonder how many movies were never made due to issues like this. And in true Frank Sinatra fashion, he didn't give his answer right away. He actually took some time to read the script and weigh his options. After a few weeks of debating the choice, Sinatra passed on the role. And that was a huge sigh of relief. So now the path was clear for the studio to proceed with the film. On paper, Nothing Lasts Forever was going to be just another high-octane action film. And there was no bigger action star than Arnold Schwarzenegger. So the offer went out to Schwarzenegger, and the script was rewritten and retitled Commando Part 2, which, given the success of the first Commando, was a no-brainer. But to everyone's surprise, Arnold did a 180 and suddenly passed on the project in favor of another 20th Century Fox film, 1987's predator once again nothing lasts forever was put on the back burner so while predator was being filmed in 1986 the studio continued to look for an actor for its next big project offers for nothing lasts forever went out to sylvester stallone harrison ford and even burt reynolds all of whom passed no one seemed interested in the film now going back to 1985 for just a moment on march 3rd of that year a new show debuted on the abc network Moonlighting. Now, this show starred Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd as two private investigators. What was somewhat unique about this show was its mix of comedy and drama. And it's credit for creating the subgenre known as dramedy. Moonlighting was also known for its characters breaking the sacred fourth wall, something that we are much more used to with shows like House of Cards. The on screen chemistry between the two co stars was very good, and the show enjoyed strong ratings during its five season run. Bruce Willis attempted to parlay his moonlighting success into feature films. His first starring role was in Blind Date. The Blake Edwards directed romantic comedy, opposite Kim Basinger. The film was a modest success, taking in forty million on an eighteen million dollar budget. Now, I mention all of this because in nineteen eighty seven, executives at twentieth Century Fox made an offer to Bruce Willis to star in their next action film. Now titled Die Hard, it stunned a lot of people. Even more shocking was the salary they offered him, $5 million. That amount was considered top dollar for even the biggest A-list movie stars in the 1980s. It certainly wasn't an offer that went out to an unproven TV actor with only one film under his belt. Now, Bruce Willis accepted this offer without thinking twice. There only was one small hitch in it, and that was that He would have to film Moonlighting during the day and shoot Die Hard at night. One of those ridiculously tough schedules for actors to pull off. So now that 20th Century Fox had their protagonist cast, it was time to search for the antagonist role of Hans Gruber. In the 1980s, Englishman Alan Rickman was enjoying an extremely successful run on Broadway. He was a Tony Award-nominated thespian. Rickman had appeared in several BBC programs but had never acted on the big screen. Now, one key factor in the producer's decision to cast Rickman was the fact that he was a very accomplished actor who nobody in America had ever seen or heard of before. And it didn't hurt the fact that he could nail a near-perfect German accent. Well, hell, he nails a near-perfect American accent in the film. There is one more notable casting we need to talk about for this, and that's the setting for Die Hard. In the book, the Klaxon Oil Company's headquarters We're in a 40-story office building in Los Angeles. Well, if there's one thing that Los Angeles doesn't have a lot of, it's 40-story office buildings. Luckily, there was one building that became available during pre-production, 20th Century Fox's brand new corporate headquarters in Century City. The 35-story building was still under construction during the filming of Die Hard, so the set designer got lucky in the sense that they didn't have to create floors that were unfinished. Construction for the building was finished in late 1987. And one interesting footnote about it is that President Ronald Reagan occupied a penthouse on the 35th floor for several years after his presidency. The executives at Fox were also very impressed with the director of Predator, John McTiernan. He managed to keep several type A personalities in check during the filming. He didn't run over budget, and the film was a big hit. So they offered him the director's seat. The first order of business for McTiernan was to change the bad guys from terrorists to high-level heist men. McTiernan believed that the audience would be too put off by terrorists, and there was a certain level of humor that he planned on bringing to the film that would translate better with big stakes robbers instead of terrorists. On July 22nd, 1988, Die Hard was unleashed to a skeptical, movie-going audience.
1: We thank you one and all and wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year!
2: It's Christmas Eve in L.A. But a team of terrorists... You want money? What kind of terrorists are you? (laughs) Who said we were terrorists? Have their own holiday plans. And I'm telling you, he's just going to to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. But the
1: one thing they didn't plan on was New York cop John McLean. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? You became mother. and you'll have it.
2: They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only.
1: Lady, do I sound like I'm more than a pizza? Come to Papa, honey. Are you really an American? Only if New Jersey counts. What does it think he's doing?
2: God. There's the artillery on us. You're paid police. <laughs> He's an easy guy to light. Like.
1: Welcome to the party, pal.
2: And a hard man to kill.
1: Bruce
2: Die Hard.
0: I say skeptical because it may surprise you to learn that Die Hard opened in third place, which is 7.3 million. But something happened. Word of mouth started spreading. Quickly, and the following weekend it brought in more money than its first weekend. And when it was all said and done, with Die Hard ended up grossing 140 million. Now, for the 1980s, that was a bona fide hit. Critics also loved the film, and Die Hard currently holds a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the film didn't just make money; it changed the action movie game forever. Instead of a super cop, John McClane was a reluctant hero who, if it wasn't for his wife being one of the hostages, would have just found a way out of the building and let the local cops handle the situation. Now think about Pulp Fiction for a moment. After that film came out, there was a ton of clones and flat-out rip-offs. Well, after Die Hard, every action movie was dubbed, quote, the Die Hard. Example, Under Siege was Die Hard on a boat, Speed was Die Hard on a bus, and Passenger 57 was Die Hard on a plane always bet on black. Well, those slogans I just said, those were used during official marketing of those films. Die Hard also changed the career path for Bruce Willis permanently, where as many thought pre-Die Hard Willis would have a modest career as a likable comedic actor. Instead, Willis was now in the same category as Stallone and Schwarzenegger. He still had the sun behind him. The pistol came out of position just as he planned tape swirling around it. Tony had his eye on him as he struggled against Steffi. Leland was close enough. He turned and offered his profile, shooting the way that he had been taught decades ago, the old-fashioned way, bringing his arm down smoothly, aligned, a piece of machinery. The first shot was the one most pure, unaffected by recoil, and Leland wanted to hit Tony amidship, where the impact would do the most good. Kill him, Daddy. Kill him! She swung at Tony, hitting him in the face. He was turning the machine pistol towards her when Leland fired, hitting him in the right chest. He looked at Leland as the second shot hit him in the shoulder, wrenching him back. Stephanie swung at him again. Get clear, baby. I got him and he knows it. Tony shot her once in the lower abdomen, not letting go of her wrist. She turned to Leland as Tony tried to aim the machine pistol at him. Shoot him. He told me he was going to do this. She pushed against Tony again. Leland shot for a third time and missed. Eight left. Tony backed up, holding Stephanie. Leland reset himself and started shooting again. The first hit Tony in the stomach, three inches above the navel. Leland squeezed another, driving Tony back against the glass. The third shot was between the other two and went clean through him, turning the window white. Tony was still clinging to Stephanie, falling backward. Leland fired three more times, not missing, almost cutting him in half. Tony fell against the window, pushing it out with his back, holding on to Stephanie by her wrist. Then hooked by her wristwatch with a finger falling out, pulling her out with him. He was already dead. Leland heard Stephanie scream all the way down. Outside people shouted. Leland screamed too, holding Stephanie's cry longer after it would have disappeared from the earth forever.
1: John McQuinn is simply an ordinary guy who was thrown into extraordinary circumstances. He's not some super cop, some indestructible, unfeeling unemotional guy he's a guy who who uh who, who cares for his wife he cares about his own life he cares about staying alive it's the police you won't hurt me oh yeah why not
2: because you're a policeman there are rules for policemen
1: yeah that's what my captain keeps telling me this could have very easily become a very heavy kill everybody blood and guts bullets flying everywhere film but uh, when your life is on the line, you could die at any moment, a, a very strange sense of humor comes out. And uh, from the research that I did and, you know, you know talking to the, you know, the various officers and detectives who helped us on this, they helped me a lot, you know, to find that, to find that kind of black humor. Mr. Mister Guest, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here, unless you want to open the front door for me.
2: but you have me at a loss you know my name but who are you just another american who saw too many movies as a child another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's john wayne rambo marshall
1: Dillon. i was always kind of partial to roy rogers actually i really like those sequined shirts do you really think you
2: have a chance against us mr cowboy Yippee-ki, motherfucker.
0: After the success of Die Hard, Willis took a role in a very small indie film called In Country. In the movie, Willis plays Emmett Smith, a Vietnam veteran who helps his niece find out more information about the girl's father who was killed in the war.
1: When I get back to the world, this will be a dream. But now, the world is a dream. Come
0: on, sudden, You got to know
1: about Vietnam. Did you get sprayed with Agent Orange over there, Emmett? Why? There's something wrong with him. <clears throat> I believe my body was entered into by aliens and I was transported. Talk to me, Emmett. There's some things we can't stop thinking about. There's something you ain't never going to understand. It's, it's, leave it alone. Emmett! There's something wrong with me. Like there's this hole in my heart. There's just something missing. I can't get it back.
2: In the mind of a girl, in the memory of a soldier, in the soul of a nation, the healing has begun. Bruce Willis, Emily Lloyd, in Country. The film
0: received strong reviews, and Willis was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance. However... The film only had a very limited theatrical run, and honestly, it's largely forgotten about. Willis would then lend his voice to the massive hit comedy, Look Who's Talking. The film starred John Travolta and Christy Alley, and went on to be one of the highest-grossing films of 1989. Now, in 1987, writer Walter Wagger published a thriller entitled 58 Minutes. The story followed NYPD captain Frank Malone who's at JFK Airport during Christmas week to pick up his daughter, who's flying in from Los Angeles. Now, the workers in JFK's control tower are shocked when all of the runway lights go dark, and a mysterious man calls to tell them that he has cut the power to not only their airport, but all of the surrounding airports, and they only have 58 minutes to meet his demand before the first of many planes start to run out of fuel. It's up to Malone It's up to, to figure out what's happening and try to save not only his daughter's plane, but all the other incoming planes. The book 58 Minutes was a modest success by book standards, but several of Wagger's books had been turned into films, including Twilight's Last Gleaming and Teflon starring Charles Bronson. And it wasn't long until 58 Minutes was optioned as a film. The studio that picked up the option was 20th Century Fox, and they saw it as a perfect vehicle for their sequel to Die Hard. Of course, some changes had to be made. Instead of Frank Malone, we have The Return of John McClane, and instead of his daughter... In the film, it's McLean's wife. She's traveling to D.C. to celebrate Christmas week with her parents. While this is happening, a rogue group of U.S. Special Forces take over the airport and attempt to secure safe passage for a notorious drug dealer. 20th Century Fox had hoped to enlist John McTiernan for the director's chair. However, McTiernan was occupied with the filming of Hunt for Red October. So the search was on for another director. In 1986, a Finnish filmmaker named Rennie Harlan had just completed his first feature film. The film in question was called Born American. It was the story of three American citizens vacationing in Finland when they
2: accidentally crossed the Soviet border. What began as an innocent adventure has become a trip into hell. For three young Americans lost on the wrong side of the Russian border. Falsely be better, accused. Be better, be Where's the rest of your terrorist group? There are no other Torture. <laughs> <laughs> Does it hurt? We're American citizens. They can't kill us. And betrayed. Our government would be just delighted if those boys simply vanished from the face of the earth. Their only hope is themselves. Now, they must fight their way to Freedom.
0: The film, which was renamed Arctic Heat in the United States, was originally supposed to star Chuck Norris. But due to issues with the budget that caused numerous delays, Chuck Norris's son ended up in the lead role. Ironically, Born American, or Arctic Heat, was banned in Finland, the country where it was filmed, due to its extreme violence and anti-Soviet sentiments. But it made money, and it was just the right amount of success for Rennie Harlan to decide to move to Los Angeles to pursue his dream of making big-budget Hollywood pictures. Now, the first film that he directed in the United States was called Prison, which was released in 1988. The low-budget horror film starring Vigo Mortensen as an inmate executed for a crime he didn't commit and his ghost that continues to haunt the prison. The film was a box office failure, but it did catch the eye of New Line Cinema's Robert Shea, who was astonished at the level of special effects Harlan was able to pull off with such a low budget. He offered Rennie Harlan a chance to direct The fourth film in New Line Cinema's flagship franchise, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Harlan had a $13 million budget to work with, and that was more than three times the budget that he had for the film Prison. And Elm Street Four would go on to gross more than $50 million in 1988. The film changed Harlan's life overnight. Three days after the release of Elm Street Four, Harlan says that he received a phone call from Steven Spielberg to congratulate him on his recent success and to lend him his support. So Harlan, who was living in a single-room apartment in LA, now had his choice of projects. And when the script for Die Hard 2 landed in his lap, he dropped everything for the chance to direct it. Keep this in mind, he's from Finland, and Die Hard was also hugely successful in Europe. So what kind of budget was Harlan given for Die Hard 2? Well, it was almost unheard of $70 million. In today's dollars, that would be like a $300 million budget. Now, there would be a total of four returning actors in this sequel. Of course, Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia as McLean's wife, Reginald Val Johnson, who has just a quick cameo Sergeant Al Powell, and William Atherton, who returns as sleazy reporter Dick Thornburg. Now, in the late 70s and 1980s, a character actor named Dennis Franz could be seen in everything from the A-Team, Hunter, and Matlock. He also had several bit parts in numerous films, but it was the casting in Die Hard 2 as Chief of Airport Police Carmine Lorenzo that introduced him to the largest audience to date.
2: Who is it? it Come in. Lorenzo? Yeah. John McLean. Yeah, yeah, I know who you are. You're the asshole that just broke seven FAA and five District of Columbia regulations running around my airport with a gun shooting at people. What do you call that shit?
1: Self-defense.
2: Oh, what? You think that L.A. badge is going to get you a free lunch or something around here? No. Maybe a little professional courtesy. (laughs) In an airport
1: on Christmas week. You gotta be kidding. Okay, fuck courtesy. How about just being professional? Your boys just walked away from a crime scene, Captain. You can't wrap this thing up in ten minutes, and you know it. You got to seal the area off, take pictures, hey, dust hey, for hey, prints. Don't lecture me, Hotshot.
2: I know what I'm doing. We're gonna dust it down. We'll take all the pictures. We'll uh, sweep for fibers. Don't do this after three or four hundred other more people go through there. Christ, you will be lucky to get a print from one of your own people. Just shut down that area and send oh, your people just in. you shut the area down. It's that simple. I just shut the area down. Yeah. And I got everybody from the Shriners Convention to the goddamn Boy Scouts traipsing through here. I got lost kids, lost dogs, not now, later. I got international diplomats. I got a fucking reindeer flying in here from the fucking petting zoo. But, John McClain, he's got a little problem. Hell, let's shut down the whole fucking airport. Now, what do you think they're going to say upstairs when I tell
1: them that? Why don't you pick up the phone and find out?
2: Because I don't need full fucking forensics to tell me all this was was some punk stealing luggage. Luggage? That
1: punk pulled a Glock 7 on me. You know what that is? It's a porcelain gun made in Germany. Doesn't show up on your airport x-ray machines here, and it costs more than you make in a month. You'd be surprised what I make in a month. If it's more than $1. 98 i I'd be Hey, hey McLean, don't
2: start believing your own press, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know all about you and that knock a thing in L.A. But just because the TV thinks you're a hot shit, that don't make it so. Look, you are in my little pond now, and I am the big fish that runs it. <laughs> so you cap some lowlife, fine. I'll send your fucking captain in L.A. a fucking commendation. Now, in the meantime, you get the hell out of my office before I have thrown out of my goddamn airport.
0: And many believe that it was his role in this film that ultimately led to his Emmy Award winning role in NYPD Blue. Unlike the first Die Hard, where the studio used its corporate headquarters in Century City for the majority of the filming, Die Hard 2 was spread out all over the country. In fact, the scene where McClane climbs the ladder from the service tunnels up onto the runway and nearly gets run over by Esperanza's plane was filmed from 8. Different locations: Granada Hills, California. This is McLean in the tunnel and climbing up the ladder. Los Angeles, California. Close up of Esperanza's inside the plane's cockpit view. The Mojave Desert, California. This is the head-on view of the plane in the sky on approach. Alpena, Michigan. This is an exterior shot of the grating door on the runway. San Francisco, California. A rear shot of the plane on approach with runway lights in the background. Sault Saint Marie, Michigan. This is the plane. After just landing, rushing towards the screen, Lake Tahoe, California, this is where the plane rushing towards McLean in the foreground, and Denver, Colorado, this is where the plane rushing towards McLean as seen from behind the front landing gear. They also had to shoot several scenes at both Fox and Universal backlots. On July 4th, 1988, Die Hard 2 was released in theaters.
2: Emergencies, we are in a cold yellow.
1: Instrument landing system is down. Backup systems won't come up. Every
2: system's dead. These guys shut
1: us down. Attention all controllers. We have a code red alert. We just about maybe two hours. After that, those planes low on fuel aren't gonna be circling. They're gonna be dropping on the White House long.
2: I want every officer recalled and assembled in body armor with full weaponry in the motor pool in five minutes. It's time to kick.
1: Alan's what team's gone. Creative than you think. Start looking for a new miracle.
2: Who the hell is this? We don't need a loose cannon on this thing. You get the hell out of my office before I throw you out of my damn airport.
1: You are the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. This is how I spent Christmas last year. McLean, this is this what you were expecting? Uh, this is just the beginning.
0: On its opening weekend, it took in 21 million, and when it was all said and done, the film took in 240 million, more than a hundred million above the first Die Hard. Critics were generally impressed with the film, and it currently holds a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. Just like Elm Street 4 opened the door to bigger projects for Renny Harlan, Die Hard 2 opened the door to a very long career for Harlan. And some of his films include The Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea, and Driven, just to name a few. Now, as for Willis, he would appear in 14 more movies before returning to the role of John McClane in 1995's Die Hard with a Vengeance. 14!
1: Would you do another one? Another Die Hard? Yeah. I don't think so. What do you look for in, in the things? I was that... trying to get him to kill me in this one. I wanted my character to be killed off in this one. They wouldn't let me do it. They said, Man, "If they came at you and one. said we'd like we want to do Die Hard three, would you consider?" It? I don't know if there's anything to do. I mean, we're still trying to figure out how to make this one better than the, you know the first film. I don't, but I don't think so. But who oh. you knows? Ask me a couple of years from now. Hey, Carmine, let me ask you something. What sets off the metal detectors first? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brains. After the huge
0: success of Die Hard 2, 20th Century Fox was eager to get started on the third installment. But there was an issue that they hadn't prepared for. And that was what I spoke about in part one of this retrospective. You see, with all the Die Hard clones and rip-offs, the first working script for Die Hard 3 had John McClane on a cruise ship during a hostage takeover. However, word got out about another film taking place on a ship. In this case the Steven Seagal movie Under Siege, and it was already in post-production. What was happening is it was beginning to look like Die Hard was going to be a victim of its own success. The executives wanted a very original story for the sequel, but since there were so many films using the quote-unquote Die Hard model, the project would have to be put on hold until they could find a competent script and story. Now, a little side note, 20th Century Fox would eventually make their terrorists taking over a cruise ship film, You may remember the action spectacle, and I say that very loosely, that was Speed 2 Cruise Control. Now, no Die Hard sequel didn't mean Bruce Willis was going to be unemployed. He was working on so many different films that it's almost hard to comprehend everything that he appeared in. 14 films in the time between Die Hard 2 and Die Hard with a Vengeance. And of those 14 films... Only Look Who's Talking To and Pulp Fiction were considered hugely successful. But to be fair, 1994's Nobody's Fool may not have made a lot of money, but it's an outstanding film. So this will bring us to writer Jonathan Hensley. Now, Hensley, who was a UMass graduate, had moved out to Hollywood in the late 1980s. His first major writing assignment was for the show The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Now, this show aired on the ABC network in 1992. Now, it was while working on the show that he was given another writing assignment, the first draft of Disney's new adventure film, A Far Off Place. The studio heads at Disney were so impressed by the work that Hensley had produced that they offered him a first-look deal. In essence, they would have the right to option any of his work first. Elated by this deal, Hensley got to work on his next screenplay, a very sharp departure from the African safari adventure that was a far-off place. Hensley's next script was entitled Simon Says, and it was an action thriller set in New York City. A mad bomber is forcing two total strangers, one a New York cop, and the other a black activist, to work together, solving complex riddles in an effort to prevent more bombings around the city. Now, even though Disney had a first-look deal, this was still considered a spec script, or speculative script, meaning that Hensley wasn't hired to write this screenplay, and it was something that he actually had to offer to studios. Now, he took the script to Disney. They showed a little interest, but only if he agreed to make major cuts to the violence and language that were in the film. They actually proposed the idea to Hensley of rewriting the film to make it more of a comedy. Now, all of these suggestions by Disney were ultimately declined by Hensley, and Disney officially passed on Simon Says. But this freed Hensley to start shopping the script around to other studios. When Hensley presented the script to 20th Century Fox movie head Mike crimmy he loved what he was reading and made a very strong offer. crimmin presented a deal that would pay 500,000 to Hensley up front and another 500,000 if the film became a hit. Now Hensley took the deal. Another side note to this story, an FBI agent got his hands on a copy of Simon Says and after reading it quickly told his superiors that something was amiss. The level of detail about the Federal Reserve Bank in Manhattan was stunning, and Jonathan Hensley found himself detained by the FBI for questioning. Now, Hensley was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing once he was able to present an article from the New York Times where he cited that he got all of his information from. There was another person we need to mention when we were talking about the Die Hard franchise, and that's Joel Silver. Now, Silver is considered by many to be one of the top action movie producers out there, And in the 1980s, he was the man behind everything from Lethal Weapon, Commando, Predator, and of course the first two Die Hard films. Now I mention Lethal Weapon for two reasons. First was that the film was released by Warner Brothers, and with the monster success of the first three Lethal Weapon films... Warner Brothers decided to lock down Joel Silver, meaning that he could no longer produce films for other studios. But trust me, he was getting paid quite handsomely for this. Now the second reason I mentioned Lethal Weapon was because right about the time that 20th Century Fox had purchased the script Simon Says, Joel Silver was hunting for the perfect script for Lethal Weapon 4. He got his hands on a copy of Simon Says and loved it. He envisioned Murtaugh and Riggs traveling to New York and all the crazy misadventures they would find themselves in. Silver made an offer to buy simon says from 20th century fox they refused his offer and they knew they had something great on their hands if silver wanted the script that bad they needed to make this top priority at 20th century fox its pre-production schedule was retooled and moved to the front of the calendar year of 1994 one other suggestion was made why not make Simon Says the next Die Hard film? The franchise had been laying dormant for a few years, waiting on the best script possible, and they had finally found it. Since Willis was a lock to reprise his role of John McClane, The real search was to find the best actor possible for the other lead role of Zeus, the Harlem shop owner who comes to the aid of McLean and ends up entangled into a day that he never asked for. The first offer went out to Lawrence Fishburne, who initially passed on the script, but when he reconsidered, the role had already been cast. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but there was a time when Samuel L. Jackson wasn't in every movie made. In fact, Prior to 1994, Jackson wasn't even a household name. He was a character actor who had an impressive resume of small parts in films ranging from Do the Right Thing, Coming to America, and Patriot Games. But it wasn't until he introduced himself to the world in Pulp Fiction that Jackson's star flew past the stratosphere.
1: I'm asking him very genuine questions about the business and dealing with, you know, celebrity and all that kind of stuff. Mainly because people keep, keep telling me that I'm going to be a celebrity. So I want to know how to be one if that time ever comes.
0: After Pulp Fiction, Jackson was in extremely high demand. And he had his choice of projects to work on. Now, even though Willis and Jackson were both in Pulp Fiction, they actually didn't share any screen time. For the role of Simon, the villain... Returning director John McTiernan was adamant that he wanted Sean Connery to play the villain. However, after reading the script, Connery passed, citing that he had no interest in playing someone so evil. The now iconic role of Simon went to acclaimed actor Jeremy Irons. Now, the big difference between the first two Die Hard films and the third was the setting. The first Die Hard was in a building. Die Hard 2 was in a crippled airport. However, the third was set in one of the biggest cities on Earth, New York, New York. And what works in favor for such an enormous place was the incredibly short time limits posed on McLean and Zeus, forcing them to cover a lot of ground. New York City truly becomes its own character in this film. There was an alternate ending for Die Hard with a vengeance. In the ending, Simon gets away with the gold and flees to some anonymous country in Europe. McLean ...has since been let go from the police force, and it's alluded that some years have passed since the events of the film. McLean has dedicated all of his time to finding Simon, and finally tracks him down to a small cafe in Hungary. In this scene, McLean lays a small rocket launcher on the table... The sights have been removed, so Simon can't tell which end is which. McLean commences a round of Russian roulette, spinning the rocket launcher on the table and then firing it. It's then revealed that McLean is wearing a flak jacket, thus preventing him from being mortally wounded in the event that the rocket hit him. Simon is killed instantly. McLean exits the diner.
2: So, how is Cobb? How are my friends in the NYPD?
1: Well, I was fired from the NYPD cops trying to save my pension oh I'm sorry to hear that yeah Yeah, the feds thought I had something to do with the robbery they even made me take a lie detector test (laughs) oh yes now that is funny yeah I thought it was hilarious
2: come on John just enjoy life's little ironies how is your black
1: friend um Zeus
2: Zeus.
1: he's good he's good his kids made the honor roll oh that's very good yeah you have children, don't you, John? Two. As soon as I'm down here, I'm going to go spend Christmas with her. And what is the point of your visit to our little backwards country? How's your girlfriend? The, the short blonde hair? Is she around? Let's just say, conversation was a trifle limited. <laughs> you fucked everybody, didn't you? Yeah. Me, the feds, your terrorist friends, your girlfriend. you a bad motherfucker. got away with it. Oh, yes. Of course, your navy may eventually dredge it up, but that'll take decades. They're not going to find any fucking gold on that boat, though, are they? Nah. No, they're not going to find any gold on that boat, because there never was any gold on that boat, was there? You figured you drove it north. Canada was my guess, was that right? Good. Yeah. Nova Scotia. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Look over here. Look down here. That's right. Throwing a gun over there. Tell all these people to get out of here. Right now. It's here. Passatech el. Passatech el. Look Hey, hey. So, do you have a headache? You no, know, I... I Saved you a couple. It's amazing, isn't it? I traced the batch number to a German pharmaceutical company who shipped that bottle to a little pharmacy right down the street. I'm a cop, remember? So you see, Simon, you must learn to enjoy life's little ironies. I brought you a present. Present? Christmas present. I'm sure, you've seen these before. It's a Chinese rocket launcher. I'm gonna play a little game. Remember your game, Simon says. Well, now we're going to play McLean, says. Here's how the game works. I ask you some questions. As long as you answer them, you don't have to pull the trigger. But you've removed the directional arrows on the sights. How do we know which way it will fire? That's what makes a game so exciting.
2: Here we go.
0: This ending was filmed but ultimately cut. The main reason cited was that it didn't fit the mold of the other Die Hard films, which tended to play out in a single day.
2: In the hands of a mastermind of terror... I want to play a game with Lieutenant McLean. What kind of game? Simon Says. The path to revenge leads straight to John McLean. If we don't do what this guy says he's going to blow up another public. <laughs> well, why place. me? What's he got to do with me? I have no idea. He just said it had to be you. Nice to be needed. Simon says, get to the paper in Wall Street Station by 1020, or the number three train and its passengers are vaporized. I'm not jumping through hoops for some psycho. That's a white man with white
1: problems. You deal with it. Where the hell are you going, McClane? I know what I'm doing. Not even God knows what you're doing. This guy wants to pound on you till you crumble. Are you aiming for these people? No. Well, maybe that mime. He wants you to dance to his tune, and then kill you oh dear you like late because i'm white i don't like you
2: because you're gonna get me killed oh! on may 19th this is a bad idea
1: ladies and gentlemen i'm a new york police officer i'm gonna ask you to calmly and quietly start moving towards the other end of the car
2: when the theater goes dark trust me guys Up. the roof blows
1: off they're setting off bombs and for some reason he's very angry with me <laughs> this as they say is where the plot thickens.
0: On May 19, 1995, Die Hard with a Vengeance opened at number one at the box office and would go on to gross more than $300 million, the highest grossing film in the franchise to date. The reviews, however, were very mixed. Most applauded McTiernan's action set pieces, but considered the story to have severe plot holes. And I hope you've enjoyed this look at the Die Hard franchise. My name is... Di- oh, what's that you say? There, There were more films in the franchise? Okay, so here's the deal. I hadn't planned on going any further than the first three films. But the fact remains that in 2007 and 2013, two more films were released. Now, this is a show about film history. I very rarely get into the critical aspect of films, or personal critical aspect of films. The fact is that I watched Live Free or Die Hard last night. Now, this is a film that I didn't even watch in the theaters. I skipped it because it was rated PG-13. But I wanted to give this one more fair shake. I made it halfway through the film before I turned it off. As for A Good Day to Die Hard... Well, ironically, that film is the only one in the franchise that had a purpose-written die-hard script. And, well, I did see A Good Day to Die Hard on opening weekend, and my thoughts can be summed up as follows. In the first three die-hard films, John McClane wasn't a super cop, he was an everyman who could and did get seriously injured. He was reluctant to be in the situations he found himself in. By the fourth, and especially the fifth film, he was invincible. He was the kind of character that you found in the early 1980s action films. He was the kind of character that you thought we would never see again after the first Die Hard came out and smashed any notion of that. Now, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the final two Die Hard films. Tweet or email me your comments. To finally close out, I hope you have enjoyed this look at the, uh, well, what was really the first three Die Hard films. The trilogy, as I like to call it. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for
2: listening.
1: Especially in America, people like the root for the underdogs. They like to the root for the guys that don't necessarily look like he's going to make it. It's the poor guy in white socks and guinea t-shirt who won't give up. John McClane, I think, probably came from the same blue-collar background that I come from. John McClane character was built out of Bruce. We said, okay, who's this guy? Oh. Lower well, a middle-class
2: kid from New Jersey with a lot of spunk. Okay, well, we better try to build John McClane out of that.
1: Well, if you do that, I can kind of lean out of the booth and actually play it left hand. I've always made the choice to play him as a guy who doesn't want to be doing what he has to do in these films. And if he had any other choice, he wouldn't do it.
2: The camera always sees who's the real person. So successful characterizations, if you will, or successful casting is
1: often figuring out who the person is and moving a part for it. He's in situations where he has absolutely no other choice but to do the one thing that he has to do. Bad idea! Jump onto a train that he knows is about to explode, get, climb out of a two and a half ton cement truck and and get up on top of it, and surf it on a wave, on a 42 foot wave of water. The, The neat thing about Bruce is that he is physically active. He's a good athlete. He can perform a lot of his own stunts to within the parameters of good conscience. The stunt crew, the special effects teams have have gotten it is so sophisticated now, and, and even more sophisticated really than, than seven years ago when we first did when we first started this you know this Die Hard series. It's some scary stuff. I mean, jumping off things, jumping through things, hanging from things. There's always a, it's a little element of you know, danger in there, but it's so rehearsed and so thought out that it's pretty safe. He knows when to stop. He has an obligation, of course, to a film. Any actor does that if they get hurt, they can't replace them.